Hello and welcome to Keyframes, a podcast about anime. I'm your host, Finn Halliburton, and with me today is Andy. Hey, hey, hey. And Duncan. Hey there. We're taking on a heavy topic, anime and religion, so there are only three of us to do the lifting. Duncan, this is your topic, I believe. Yeah. I mean, we actually had a conversation before this podcast about whose topic it was because we all thought that we'd submitted it. <laughs> Oh. Which is auspicious. Yeah, mm. I, I'm sure. I'm sure it's it's my topic mainly because I, I have a very definitive recollection of what inspired it, which was a extremely bad uh, slideshow presented by Fox News about the aims of Antifa. Uh, one of which was attacking and dethroning God, um, which made me think, oh yeah, that, that's a really anime concept. Like, there's so many anime where where pe- where uh, someone. A shonen protagonist uh, powers up and goes and punches God, or similar. Um, and <laughs> anime seems to engage with religion on a far more widespread basis than a lot of Western media does. It's Western media, at least in the UK, is very secular. We don't get religion mentioned much, whereas it's a, a constant in anime, be it as chrome or as a more concrete theme. And... I'm going to try and narrow this down a little bit before we get fully dragged into the weeds by saying, okay, so what do I think religion is uh, fundamentally concerned with? And what's some good examples of anime which investigate those themes? And like, I think it you can get it down to two main concepts. Consciousness, aka the soul, and morality, aka God. Mortality should probably be in there somewhere too, but I think we might get to that one and how it relates to those other two later as well. But before we go too close to that metaphysical black hole and <laughs> all get dragged into a completely pointless discussion, which none of us are even vaguely equipped to drag our ways out of, uh, I think I should go towards some more concrete examples of consciousness, I think, is one of the the way that we think about how we perceive the universe and how that in turn relates to godhood i i on omnipotence cyberpunk has always had this concept of like the singularity of like this the point where machines and humans meet and become one and evolve into something greater and more transcendent than normal humans and Ghost in a Shell is I think like one of the first examples of that I don't don't know about that but it's one of the most prominent early examples I would agree what do you think the first one is then? Um, Akira? (laughs) I don't think Akira uh, weirdly I don't think of it as cyberpunk but I guess yeah it's, it's certainly so Akira certainly he, he, he is someone um, transcending humanity into a, a higher plane, but that's kind of... Well, well especially, especially the manga where, like, there is the time skip and then it is uh, it is Tetsuo, like, ruling over this, like, apocalyptic, like, techno-shell of a world, too. But yeah, it was all clearly coming together in the, in the early to mid-80s, uh, mm. for sure. In a lot of these worlds, there's... A, you very, very rarely get a cyberpunk thing where religion is also a active thing. A, a world without a god, that's that's the first assumption a cyberpunk makes, that there is no um, grander authority over uh, men and therefore we must ev- evolve into one ourselves. Yeah, and I also think 
granted this isn't my spirituality, at least not in a, a formalized sense, but I do think that Japan's animist background does mean that if we are creating a new environment and environments are necessarily by by belief and use mm-hmm. endowed with supernatural if not literal spirits then like what god are we building on the internet this is something we hear in like lane especially yeah. but it's it's all over it's all over that uh that big wave of cyberpunk that really made an impact i think around that there's, there's definitely a, a sense of in in those shows it's knowledge equaling power and mm-hmm. infinite knowledge equaling infinite power and therefore godhood there's sometimes in those shows this phrase, this phase between someone ascending to godhood, where their old moralities might and their old attachments might sl- might have one last moment. Like in both Ghost in Your Shell and Lane, there's these little moments where they they may look after a friend or or something before they sort of go off into the net and become this strange, disinterested being. And la- like that's the other. Th- other part often in the, the, the cyberpunk god is very much disinterested it's kind of once they once someone's ascended it from our world they it's assumed that they kind of become disinterested in it that they are almost an objectivist objective god like it's emotion these emotionless beings guided by perfect logic because of perfect knowledge and i think i'll, I'll when i talk a bit about orbital children after the break there's some interesting pushbacks against that concept in in that particular show and i think it's better when shows do push back against that like against the idea that perfect information necessarily uh equates perfect morality and i, and I guess like perhaps the 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 wider the the, the bigger of the two things and the the le- the, the less esoteric of them is probably the the rightness the morality and everything that comes with that like god is the ultimate arbiter of what is right and the omnipotent enforcer of that and i think like this whole thing started because i noticed like in so many fantasy shows priests are basically the cops it's it's like if 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 you got yeah. a, a it's like oh there's vampires running loose send for the priest cops and the priests come along and they beat up the vampires yeah yeah i do think it's in a western media because i think we do i do agree about the observance of like secular assumptions in western media versus japanese where um if you got something strange going on in a western such an American movie or TV show. Yes, precisely. You call the Ghostbusters or you call like a paranormal weirdo online or at the very least you call the cops. But like roping in a like your local Buddhist priest um, <laughs> or or whatever is like very normal when when the supernatural when the supernatural comes up in these sort of things. Like even an Urusei Yatsura, like Cherry, the priest is just like all over <laughs> that um and granted he's a bit more of like this the like scoundrel priest who just mooches off of his community <laughs> and never actually helps anybody except through like gnomic bullshit uh but but there is this idea that like buddhism exists much more comfortably with a with a technologized future than christianity does and part of that is is cultural baggage especially in the u.s where the evangelical movement and the fundamentalist movement have have largely evolved into anti-modernity forces while i do not think that's the case i mean someone who knows more than me either on this podcast or in our listeners can can correct but i do don't think there's the same 
hostility to the things we consider part of our future uh, that we that we see whenever anyone invents anything in America, and then they ask a, a, a prominent local pastor to comment on it. <laughs> so, I think that, like, for a start, it's worth mentioning that Japan's religious uh, alignment affiliation have is a forty eight point one percent of Shinto followers, uh, forty six point five are Buddhists, and then one point one percent are Christians, and then four point three are others, which I think is like. Shockingly low for um, a country that is very modern and like practically no uh, non-religious people. Like that, four point three percent pretty much captured mm-hmm. the non-religious people, as opposed to like Korea. South Korea is about like fifty percent are non-religious. Um, but I just feel that uh, with that, the way that Shinto and Buddhism, it doesn't really have a belief in one true god but a belief in thousands of gods for a lot of things and i think buddhism even teaches that you yourself could become a god like you Mm, yourself if you believe in it you are your own temple and you are your own you know your own god in a way um and i do think that that influences a lot of the storytelling behind these our shows and also why they're so happy to put religion in because to them, it's whilst it is as important as Christianity for us, I don't feel that Buddhism necessarily or has the same sort of community vibe that we have in uh, sort of such a vindictive and sometimes mess up malaligned sort of practices. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. You made me realize something, which is um, that the examples I, I gave uh, of, 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 with cyberpunk, like, I think my reading of them, because of the place and, and culture I grew up in, is like, okay, objectivism, like, you're, you're, you're giving, you're going after the truth. Whereas it could also be, if you take a Buddhist reading on something like, um, Ghost in the Shell or Lane, it could be shedding your worldly, um, wor- mm-hmm. your worldly concerns and attachments, and that's why they're descending. And I think that's a that's an interesting way of viewing it, and uh, and gives a good context to those. And uh, yeah, it's it's the, the, the you brought up the the gods with a small g, the the many the many gods. Like uh, I think I'm. You know, um, just like my one of my favourite shows is Eccentric Family, and that's very much uh, mm-hmm. something which mm-hmm. takes place in a world of small gods, where it's places and things which have acquired, as as Ben was talking about, places and things which have acquired like a a resonance or a personality through use or through inhabitation, and slowly that sort of forms some sort of consciousness or or influences is someone the character of someone and i think that's that's a very good setting for drama i think it, it mm. like having someone literally be like the spirit of a neighborhood that's something which is far i think far more universal than a p- particular prescribed idea of what a god is like as you say shinto has has strong resonances in in those but I also believe that the way that Shinto practices its religion is a lot less sort of forced and you have to follow one strict scripture and one strict rule. It doesn't really do that. It just says, 
follow your heart. And you know, from my understanding, at least, I'm, I'd love to be corrected if anyone knows more about this. But it feels it's very good for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I should have done more reading, but I I was stupid. Uh, so yeah. it feels like it's very much kind of um, yeah, like be an inherently good person, and then when you need to have say some some help for good exams or something, then you go to a shrine, you pay your thousand yen or 500 yen, and you clap and pray and you buy a, a shrine, um, you know, em- emblem, write a mm-hmm. message and say, yeah, good luck. So I also feel it's why there's maybe more religion, Shinto and Buddhists in Japan. Yeah. I think that the, like, if you look at the religion demographic in, in England over time, what you see is as time goes on and our thinking becomes more modern, you see that there's a drop in Christianity and an increase in atheism. Mm. You don't see that in Japan because the way that Shinto and Buddhism is introduced into your life is is less of a, a forced religion and more of just like a, you know. Yeah, there's this, this thing which comes in the, the service, Andy, where a lot of British people will say they're spiritual, but they won't say they're religious. There is ubiquitously a concept of a lapsed Catholic or a lapsed Christian. Lapsed Buddhist seems like solidly a Western concept <laughs> introduced into the discourse. Um, there isn't much, isn't much in the actual texts of Buddhism where you can stop being a Buddhist if you, if you believe these things before. And I imagine Shintoism, which has even less of a... A scriptural centralized authority um, would be even more so. Like, how do you stop? How do you stop believing that like everything has a spirit and mm. that like this the like nature the naturism and animism and whatever doesn't exist? I don't know. I do think this is a good way to to, to transition. When 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 I read religion, I thought about organized religion as opposed to Duncan just thinking about anything that could be a god, uh, which is not meant to denigrate that angle. I think it actually <laughs> has more room for more room for debate. But I do like to contrast how Japanese culture, as expressed in anime, has its ideas about its own homegrown religions, or at least ones that have been longstanding. Buddhism, obviously, is is exogenous religion, but is now firmly part of the mm-hmm. of the cultural fabric. Versus like how it sees exogenous religions, largely Christianity, although occasionally we get some weird Jew- Jewish stuff, which I'm not going to talk about because I don't. F- yeah, like and the, the representation uh, <laughs> of Sikhs isn't isn't the best either when they pop yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Nia under no. seven has a has a has a, a Punjabi Sikh, an alien cosplaying as a Punjabi Sikh, I believe, and mm. that, it's not. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, that whole that whole that whole subplot of like aliens trying out different cultures to be a part of is is great in conception and very poor in practice, um, unless you like just slightly racist jokes about the Chinese coming from the Japanese, which granted you get a lot in, in anime. Um, maybe too yeah. much, but uh. like, yeah, I was talking about Urusei Yatsura and how cherries there all, all over. Um, Higurashi, just like the idea that one of the characters is just like a shrine maid. Um, and that there is this like small God who, uh, just demands a blood sacrifice every year. Sorry. Spoilers for fucking Higurashi. Come at me, bros. Um, <laughs> It won't help you understand the anime any better. Uh, but but yeah, the idea that just these, these priests are everywhere and that they are part of the social fabric, even in like X-1999, which we just talked about a few episodes ago, and like all of the dragons of heaven are connected with these shrines who are part of this like Anmyoji sort of like spiritual net protecting slash sealing Tokyo. The idea that that it doesn't remove you from society to have 
to have a profound religious connection to Buddhism or Shintoism seems to be very common in anime. Um, and maybe that's just because of when you're talking about how like there's one right way for Christianity, Andy, that is a, that is the, the baggage of all these ecumenical councils and all of these, these uh, bloody schisms uh, that last into the present day. And mm-hmm. we have the Pope just now, I mean, only, only a decade or so ago, apologizing for crusaders sacking Constantinople. Like, yeah, they're, there isn't that sort of like blood soakedness, which is surprising in some ways because the Buddhist monks used to be incredibly politically active. When you saw in Haikimonogatari, uh, if they all get their naginatas and go out and and fight, they're like a, a force to be reckoned with, and they can actually change the politics of the nation. But there is this idea that they that there isn't this ideal of separateness, and that you can just go around the corner and just walk into uh, Kanagi and just like, oh hey, here's a shrine maiden. Um, here's a, a human human embodiment of a small god, and they're just here. They're just hanging out. Um, if you believe in them, they, they get more powerful. If you don't, they don't. It's Monogatari series rules, which also mm-hmm. had a, someone just turning into a god. Um, and I will talk about how they, how they depict Christianity differently, although I think we all know the answer to that. <laughs> uh, yeah, which again is sort of, I mean, centralized to the idol, literal idol sort of culture in Japan is, again, I feel like all of this stuff is subconsciously related to the way that they like their religion. Because at the end of the day, like religion is the way that people told stories back in the day. Religion, religion moderates how people relate to the universe. And I think that there is oftentimes a rot in modern Christianity, especially where just the, the solo scriptura mentality of just like it's in the Bible and even to some extent in a lot of congregations, it's not even reading the Bible. It's just having your pastor mediate what he's read or her in rare, much rarer cases, unfortunately, uh, what, what he's read in the Bible uh, to you. And so we do lead, we do end up with these, this very, um, very fractionalized, very fragmented, even even I'm not going to go ahead and just use all my dissertation. It's frisipatious. Uh, <laughs> Uh, attitude towards religion what? where um Recipacious? what is that easily fragmented and prone to fighting um, thank you i'm an idiot yes. <laughs> cut all this out <laughs> or we'll have a daily bins word challenge as part of this podcast going forward but yeah like the idea that you can just go to an absolute authority i think is, is pre- i mean like like yeah the buddha the buddha figured it out in terms of buddhism but you can't like just do what the Buddha did and get enlightenment. That's that's actually pretty heavily argued against in, mm. in, in Buddhist theology and dogma. Like you can't just copy how someone got to enlightenment. This isn't a speed run. You can't you um it's something to be refined over at often lifetimes, if not a single life. So yeah, just a general attitude towards what active function religion is going to play versus it being a framework for you to be perceiving your reality and your social relationships, as you mentioned, Andy. It's interesting you're t- talking about like uh, how sort of religion calcifies and sort of becomes like, goes from something where you are, it, it's more finding your own enlightenment to a, a more prescriptive set of things. Because one of the shows I wanted to talk about was uh, Scrapped Princess, which is kind of on, sits on the boundary of cyberpunk and fantasy. In that show, you've got the, the Mauser cult, which is is basically the, almost like a, a, a Roman Catholic uh, religion equivalent. It's got, it's, it's got uh, priests, it's got cathedrals, it's got all, all those. And 
it's just there as a constraint to keep humanity bottled up. And I think there's this thing which I've seen a couple of times of religion slash gods as protectors, as humanity not being ready to move beyond the, um, the, the confines of their cradle. Yeah, no, I think especially um, when we see the Catholic Church especially depicted, for better or for worse, it is an authoritarian institution built to control human beings because um, that's its relationship. That's that's been its relationship with Japan for centuries up until mm. relatively recently. And so this idea of like the church as either having or pretending to have access to special knowledge that it needs to shepherd humanity into a place where it can appreciate mm. is a very common thing. Mm-hmm. And like, even when it's just, just complete like bonkers wall dressing, like all of the uh, Gnostic stuff and Evangelion, it's still like secret knowledge that a, a more spiritually advanced body is dispensing to people. And in the early episodes of Evangelion, I just a rewatch recently. We should do a tween someday, um, yes. as everyone throws trash at me. Uh, but well, we've been but saying yeah. for months, no years. Well, I was wor- <laughs> I was worried that I would like be crying too much to to like do a proper rewatch, and I did. I had tears streaming <laughs> down my face during instrumentality while my girlfriend looked Aww. on baffled. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, the problem but, with uh, Eva is everyone when whenever anyone watches it, it's overwhelming, and then a couple of weeks later, you don't. It's really difficult to put into words and then then you want to talk about it and then someone else watches it and really yeah. wants to talk about it and it's back and forth it's especially given my girlfriend's personality me just being like whether you like it or not this is art as just like a statement is just kind of a distasteful thing for the person you're watching a show with to say <laughs> like like we can't watch uh we can't watch rupaul's drag race with andy and andy's like whether you like it or not this is art like that would make me hate it i can't blame him and i can't blame my girlfriend um but <laughs> But even in the early episodes, people don't even know why the angels are attacking. And, and often the, the reality of the angels themselves is, is hidden, even though as the city gets like progressively and repeatedly soaked in blood um, and the whole idea of of blood and sex being these two mediums that like humanity's Gnostic awareness is birthed out of, um, which eventually ends up with Shinji cutting his way out of a out of a geometrically intricate womb alien and then just blood just everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but yeah, like, so like the idea that like people can't know this and that like hidden, hidden knowledge, which maybe stems with the hidden Christians. Cause like mentioning index in terms of shows that just completely mm. squander, uh, their like religious Chrome, like the hidden Christians are a powerful political force there who is basically responsible for propitiating slash blocking the Catholic church from having more control in Japan. There are these like, yeah, it, it's, it's, the idea of of religion as this hidden power, centralized religion as this hidden power, I think is is present. It's how it's how Japanese media often deals with the ubiquity and the omnipresence and the seeming strictness of Christianity as a global force. Mm. Um, and it it comes out in weird ass ways. It comes out with a Catholic battle maids in Black Lagoon, mm-hmm. um, a show which does have a good depiction of Judaism, which is which is rare uh, in anime. So yeah. I was also just going to bring up um, on a completely separate topic. How separate? In the way that it's it's related to religion and anime, but not okay, in the way okay. that we've been talking about. Um, so when you're in, if you ever go to Akihabara, there is a shrine in Akihabara, um, which is very popular. 
And the reason why it's popular is because it is um, the core shrine that is used in Love Live, um, which has meant that you go to the Akihabara shrine and there are there are emmas that are same religious stuff, but then it's all plastered with Love Live merchandise and imaging. And it's interesting and fascinating to have a religion actively pursue and like accept franchising and mm. uh, <laughs> modern media as a way to get people to their shrines. And there's been a lot of, um, it's caused a lot of strife in like, I think the Shinto community, it's very, it's, it's been quite controversial them doing that. Um, it's worked wonders for them because people are buying, you know, uh, Nozomi, uh, Emma's, at a at a click and you go to that shrine and it's still it's really popular there's you know like so many incredible pieces of art on these emma shrine like emma tokens which are like these square blocks that you write your wishes on you know i've seen people make a like a dragon ball a dragon ball like ryu dragon out of like four of them like chained together <laughs> and it's fascinating but also like really interesting you, d- you don't see christianity go like well this has a good depi- this happens to have this church in so i guess we'll uh, just unfortunately do, uh... Andy, we just get a <laughs> here in america we have a darker shittier version of that which is churches doing like gun giveaways and stuff like yeah they they drive in they drive engagement through commerce just as everyone else does it's just it's part of our poisoned ass <laughs> culture so you just you just don't get that sort of acceptance of merchandising and then the religion being like yeah we'll we'll we'll, we'll put anime shit on our thing cuz for them it also feels like they're belittling their religion by adding this like really quick money cash grab of just like anime characters cute girls we'll put it on there and you'll get loads of money uh yeah, well, Christianity has a complicated relationship with the uh, with the selling of spiritual benefits. So I think that uh, Christianity's prudishness with uh, with commerce and money lending is probably a little bit to do there. Um, they certainly don't have Shintoism doesn't have a problem with people coming in and throwing coins into the into the offering box uh, in the same way. Uh, yeah, I, I was w- wondering if if this is just a, a me perception thing uh, based on the. Um, architecture of um shinto shrines because i've never i've never been to one but i've always the way they're depicted is as these quite open air places like um a lot of it is the the path up to the shrine the 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 tori gate and then the the sort of courtyard and and the uh the the donation area and like you very rarely see the inside of a shrine in in any of the the shows we we watch it's always the outside and that feels like that makes them by default a more a more communal more um social space and and more open to the sort of things andy andy talks about in terms of becoming more attached to a new community in that space yeah i i don't know entirely for sure but i do think that actually one of the ways that christianity and shintoism have in common is that there is there is the idea of like the holiest of holies there's the part of the building as a as a cult site um that Mm. only should be accessed to people who have 
who have been trained in the knowledge mm-hmm. and sanctified or purified. Um, and so I do think that it seems like in Shintoism, what that means is that it externalizes the, the shrine's functions. The shrine is a, is a container and people benefit from approaching it. Um, but I do, I do think it's interesting that like there's a lot more community function because people just go to the almost like old, like ancient Greek shrines. You have this district and so you can be inside the the sanctified bounds of the sanctuary, but you don't need to go up the fucking altar to like be mm-hmm. in the shrine in yeah. the same way you see with Christianity. It's, uh, anyway, I was just going to say like your question quickly about the shrines. Like, I do have a, a better knowledge and I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I probably am wrong. Um, but like, but less wrong than uh, me. <laughs> three white guys talking about religions. Yeah. They don't. They don't do J- just less wrong than me. That's the important Podcasting. thing. The inca- The yeah. The insides of the Iso, uh, like the shrines, are is sacred, um, and it's quite interesting. I went to Ise and the Ise Grand Shrine. Is, yeah, the most religious of all uh, Shinto temples in Japan, to the point where it's like you know how you get those good fortunes. You don't get any, or like, uh, like the actually, you do get the little the tokens of good luck, but you don't get any good fortunes, which is a very popular thing that people do in shrines. You know where you get like bad, good mm-hmm. stuff like that. You don't get that because just going to the shrine in itself is like the best luck in the world, and you're just like you're fortuitous for being there. Um, but the uh, the the interesting thing is that there are. Um, the, the location of the shrine, there are two places. Um, and that is because they rebuild the shrine uh, every 20 years um, as a part of the Shinto belief of death and renewal of, the na- uh, of nature and the importance of all things as a way of, and as well as a way of passing like building techniques from one generation to the next. Uh, so when you go there, you see the Yusei shrine and then you go down and you just see a, like some stones and a really meticulously like layered out area of white stones, which is like, this is where the shrine will be in X years because they're going to move it. And there is a central bit that only like the most religious and the most like righteous of priests can move. I think it's like a tiny box with, I think maybe yeah. one of the things that it's like a sword. Or oh, one of the three, one of the three like great treasures of yeah. Japan, I think. Yeah, I think I was just... reading a very interesting article about that, which I will not be able to find for the show notes about <laughs> how we don't know if uh, in the uh, Haiki Monogatari when they lose the sword, we don't know if they lost the real sword or if it was a fake sword because a few hundred years later, the sword shows back up and they definitely didn't get it back from the from the bay where they lost it. So, <laughs> but that's the kind of splitting, like like it almost. And this is something that we again like is kind of Monogatari ish of just like. If everyone believes it's the sword, it's the sword. Like, like that. That la- this this whole like privileging of like literal, yeah, co- consistent singular reality is not is not something. And I, I think it's good. Thank you, Andy, for speaking up about that because I think it is easy to just paint Shintoism as like anything goes. Just like believe in fucking spirits and go to the shrine once a year. And that's the, like it's definitely a religion with its with its rules and with its cultural mores. And it's a it's a religion that's incredibly um, focused on on uncleanliness and defilement and breaking taboo um, and purification. Like there are like there are like lots of I mean, we've all seen anime where they've got that uh, that whip of corded uh, corded pieces of cloth, white cloth that they have to like. Yeah. That's like folded paper, I believe. Oh, yes. 
sure why not um yeah but really undermining my point here with <laughs> with that dismissiveness um but i do i it is a pre it is easy because it is also very easy if you are someone whose main contact with japanese culture is just watching anime to just ingest this kind of like slurry as as anime handles shintoism as not as dismissively as it handles christianity um but still like kind of just anything goes this religion is what we say it's going to be so yeah thank you for contributing that knowledge i i'm always humiliated when we talk about this topic of japanese culture and i'm 20 minutes i'm like oh shit none of us knew anything <laughs> i um, mean it, it is worth mentioning that the isei shrine uh the kotai jingu which is the main shrine has the uh sacred mirror which um, one of the oh the mirror so, okay yeah yes um, the mirror the sword and the the sword it's a sword a mirror and a jewel kasagani no surugi yata no kagami and yasakani no magatama if you were, is... if you're curious listeners uh, stop listening to this podcast and read the links I'm going to put in the show notes please don't <laughs> listen to us talk about this anymore yeah. um, I think they're very interesting because they are seen as like the three items that are like the soul of Japan and. They are, yeah, it's it's really interesting to have these kind of like national national objects that aren't just like ridiculed into non-existence, like the crown jewels. Who cares about the crown jewels anymore mm. for UK? Maybe y'all do. Sorry if sorry if I've just offended two cultures uh, with this the, podcast. The, but... the, the ravens have all flown away now, Ben. You've, <laughs> you've offended them. The UK will cr crack in two, at least until... <laughs> crack in two. <laughs> At least until like an index, uh, the 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 they uh, raise uh, the 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 tower up as like a battle fortress and send it <laughs> flying out to fight the French. Yeah. Um. I want to quickly talk. The moment has completely passed, but I also I had one instinct to do what Duncan did, and I wanted to make a joke about Haruhi as like, what if what if your what if God was your classmate? What if God was one of us? Um. And she was also really easily bored. Um. And also. <laughs> And also voiced by uh, God, what's it? Aya Hirano? Is that Aya Hirano? Yes. I'm the only person who knows this. I'm only no, asking it, my. It is. Myself. It is because she. That was a massive scandal about her. Remember? Right about dating people. God. Mm -hmm. this, yeah. Which God, again, politics is so which dumb. Is, which once again is like we could go on another talk about um, the way that um, uh, 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 VAs and actresses are uh, sort of treated as oh, almost like shrine maidens and yeah. expected to maintain yeah. purity and stuff and that's uh, idolized no... idolized <laughs> so um, yes has there actually been any <laughs> idol enemies about gods there must be you'd think um idol mm. god anime this is gonna I'm, fuck I mean... up my search results <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh there's a there's a manga called idol is a god <laughs> That's but a webtoon. The, the way that idols are depicted is very much like a religious way. It's, it's you know you have to maintain your chastity and you have to maintain like your goodness and that you are pure of heart. By by my by my reading, she had a perfectly normal dating life where she dated one guy and then she dated another, and people got mad that she dated two guys in the same band, like she's fucking Yoko Ono or something. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, That's yeah. maybe an unfair characterization, but I but I don't know. The thing about Haruhi is that, again, that's that's a very contemporary idea of of God, of, of like a very one very detached from any institution or or a very selfish and uh, sort of um, childish God, um, and I th I think that's kind of interesting that 
I you do get like the, the the trope of the like the lazy demon overlord or or lazy angel is is definitely one you you you, you seem to have popping up like the mm-hmm. or, or as as Ben Ben said like the slovenly priest who just like mooches off his his uh, uh, his uh, par- parishioners is is pops up a lot and yeah. I, I think of um, Pompoko and the the way the sort of uh, elderly mm-hmm. uh, tanukis are revered by all all the rest and the, they kind of pop up once every couple of years do their magic tricks and. And then disappear again, and and they're, they're treated and fated by all as as the wisest and most amazing Tanuki there's ever been. Yeah, there's a lot much more casual sense of approaching <laughs> of approaching divinity and having divinity, I think, as well. There's one last thing I I wanted to to mention, which appropriately enough to kill this topic, let's talk about death. I think this this weird it idea in things like Eva. Humans are seen as incomplete, and death as as part of 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 that. And because of that, we seek out others, and we build have to fill that gap in our lives with our descendants and our family. And I think things like uh, Eva or F- Full Metal Alchemist, for instance, both are uh, shows where you have someone uh, a death in a close knit family, causing uh, often the father in in that to basically attempt to rewrite the rules of of the world so that pain that that incompleteness which is fundamental to the human experience is somehow mitigated or removed that the the way god has written has created us is wrong that he's created us to die and and to suffer and that is makes him a target to be overthrown and destroyed it's interesting that in both those shows that at you do get a, a godlike um, entity or, or or moment of transcendence, and the way that's resolved isn't through conflict. In the end, it's through uh, reconciliation, like an, an acceptance. And I think sort of an an acceptance of of mortality is kind of like a big part of coming to terms with an either the non-existence or. Or the existence of God, like kind of not blaming God for your mortality and not railing against the the fact that there may be nothing but a void that awaits you afterwards, just an an acceptance and things like um, either uh, end with you just kind of just accepting and trying to make the most of your life. I, I do think when you were talking about all that, all I can think about is all the isekai where someone dies and stands in front of God and God's like, I guess you get a second chance. Um <laughs> I think de- I think death in anime is actually you should literally go and put that on 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 the sheet because I don't think we have an, enough time or space here. But the, but the idea of of death as a as an enemy versus death is just a, a reload of of your being in existence into into a new form. Like there are still conversations in terms of Evangelion about like what Gendo's plan was, why Futsuki went lo- along with it. Um, what he was hoping to accomplish, what Yui was hoping to accomplish by merging with the Eva, all these things um, that is hard. It's hard to say, but I do think that that the fear and bitterness that we often see when people face death is a lot less present in a, in a religious context in a lot of anime. The fact is men are men and women are born to die a lot more than it is a fate specifically assigned to us by a, a divinity who we can interact with. 
um, or blame even. I mean, so yeah. yeah. I mean, religion comes in very strongly at the end of people's lives, usually. Like, yeah, that's true. You are going into the great unknown. No one, nobody knows what happens when you die, and religion can be there to ease your concept of death. Um, so, and some people relish that and use it as a, a sign, a way of giving them inner peace before they go, and then also being able to, you know appease for any badness that they've done so that that's kind of the thing i always yeah. I, I'm, I'm seriously i'm seriously voting like anime and death should be on this <laughs> on this list I don't, yeah. I don't think we can do a full conversation of how anime treats death what anime what yeah. the majority of anime believe is the significance of death in terms of our time in this cosmos um there's right. a lot of different opinions and the isekai one i quoted is was depressingly ubiquitous it makes but... me I do. <laughs> yeah that, that, that is a, a sadly as you um, say a very ubiquitous thing you die there's the god she goes i mean hey, it's what i want like, it's what i want i want another stab honestly at it if i if i get that but i don't think that's how it's gonna work yeah, like I, I, cosmologically I would, when when i die I, I really hope i just get brought up by a god and then it's like yo do you want to go into an rpg world um i'll be like sure you're like you're like how many tits are there? Because I it's going to be really important. Yeah, how is this Log Horizon or is this is this Konosuba? I really need to know. Yeah, which one? I definitely want Konosuba. That's the fun one. <laughs> cool. Okay, let's take a break. We'll we'll come back and we'll be talking about Mamora Hosoda's new movie Bell. We will be talking about Orbital Children on Netflix, and I will be talking about the Shirabako movie very briefly. back as promised andy is going to talk about the hot new memora hosted movie andy did you like bell i'll get are you gonna that. make john sad <laughs> i am gonna make john sad i wish he was on this podcast as i always wish he's on his podcast but mm-hmm. um so follows a girl called suzu um who is this shy everyday high school girl living in a rural village there is a, a virtual metaverse or whatever you want to call it um called you uh, where you can rebuild yourself, as the uh, as the sort of introduction says, uh, Suzu being incredibly emotionally distraught over her mother's passing, finds that she has lost the ability to sing, and then finds that through you she can sing again, and becomes an incredibly like sensationally popular uh, idol. The You verse. She then meets a dragon. Uh, well. It's not a dragon. It's a it's a beast, but it's because uh, the Japanese is Yuto Sobakasu no Hime, which means dragon and the freckled princess. She sort of becomes entranced by him, uh, and he's like a very angry, hateful monster who fights and then runs away. The movie is about her living in the real world and in the U-verse, trying to find out who the real person is of the beast is as well as because there's this whole thing in the universe about an anonymous anonymity. And my opinion of the film was <laughs> that it was fine. I thought it was very messy. I thought that there was the, the threat in the video game or in, in the U um, 
is that there is a a real dickhead like guy who can use your biometric data to find out who you really are and then show your real self in the game. I'm like, that's all that happens. Like the the big thing is that she's scared that people are going, yeah, that she's (laughs) going to be doxxed or that people are going to like, it find if they find out that she is, you know, what she who she believes to be an ugly, freckled schoolgirl, that they're all of a sudden not going to like her. Not even worried about the potential death threats or anything like that. Just literally, like people won't like me anymore. And so there's like a lot of messiness with the threat, which just didn't make sense. So what they find out who she is, who why does she care? There's there's a pretty nasty sort of like interrogation scene, but. About the whole scene, I was just kind of thinking, just log off, just log off, and then you won't be there anymore. <laughs> That's the problem with those with those digital dreamscapes. Is yeah, like log off and take a vacation, bro. Yeah, just, um, just log like yeah. And I, I will say that there's a lot I really did like. There's a really great confession scene. It's like a still frame, and people walking off the camera and then talking and then walking oh. back in like this really funny like awkward emotional like school childhood way and it lasts for like a few minutes just just sitting on this frame and i really enjoyed that like that was the best scene for me but Mm. so that was great the other thing that really landed uh the two things like the backgrounds of the real world were absolutely beautiful they were lush they were gorgeous The, the amount of detail on the the world is stunning in this country bumpkin town which as you know is like is is like my one weakness uh is portraying <laughs> japanese countryside beautifully and it really does like uh you can smell the dust in the carriages you can like oh, good. feel the the wind breeze in the beautiful like uh countryside settings and that is that is lovely <laughs> yeah um i mean i i talked with john briefly about this and he admitted that he that he liked it although he he thinks it's a it's a flawed movie that does not earn a lot of the things it's doing in the end. I think that he the the stakes aren't very well established and that the mm-hmm. relationship between Belle and the Beast is they just kind of tell you that they're like really closely intertwined. I don't know. I think that yeah. it's hard not to look at what Memora Host has done and to watch the transition from Wolf <laughs> Children and the previous movies where he was working with a Satoko uh, Okudera as as a writer and Boy and the Beast, Mirai no Mirai and Bell, which are all written by him by himself. Mm. Um, and I feel like his works are always kind of messy and have a, a few too many loose ends for my taste. But there's just there's a level of, of contrivance, I feel, in his recent stuff that's a bit frustrating, like you could have done a, another pass on this and made the threat of being discovered not sound ridiculous to anybody who's been on the internet for like <laughs> 10 seconds. Yeah. Uh, and I'm saying this is someone who's not, who hasn't seen the movie and who's excited to see the movie. Um, even if it is like lesser memorial hosted is still a wonderful watch at the very least. Yeah. But I, I feel, yeah. So I feel like the connection, especially the connection between the, the bell and uh, the dragon, um, or the beast for me, at least it, it didn't land. It didn't connect. I didn't feel any, yeah real understanding is to the emotional weight behind that. And I'm, I'm also probably going, I'm going to ruin the ending now because I thought that the one good thing about the film is that the ending really nailed 
for me, it, it was really good. Like, I, I felt that that saved the movie, actually, because she goes all the way to Tokyo to save these two people from her, their abusive father. And the, the thing that really landed was the beginning of the film, she talks about her mum and she's like, I am, I am my mother's child and she ended her life to save another child in this river. And, uh. she, and she didn't understand why she did that. You know, she didn't understand why, why did she give her life for this child when I need a mum, I need someone there to protect mm-hmm. me. And there's, mm-hmm. you know, this interaction with her father and her choir who are all like, who's all part of like her mum and she can't talk to them and she can't express herself and she's sort of secluded and reclused into herself. And that, that means that there's like this, this barrier of interaction that she can't communicate with them. Then what happens is in order to save the beast and go out and just, just find this person in like miles away in Tokyo and, and connect with them, her doing that means that she finally has that connection with her mother. I thought that was really beautiful and I thought that that was fucking perfect and and really nailed it and i'm i think i'm overselling it maybe than how it really is it's okay i i've i've regularly whipped myself into a a higher opinion of a movie that i'm talking about in this podcast just just go for it um yeah because i still believe that that ending was really gorgeous but it was just messy the way that all these there were too many people and they didn't they didn't introduce themselves well enough and it was sort of like your realization as to their connection to her is usually given away in like one second freeze frames of a photo. Then there's other things where like her best friend just just randomly moves all of her computer equipment into an abandoned school and they don't explain or really tell you why. <laughs> and you're like, what the fuck is going on? It, it, it's it got this weird sort of, the, the, the ideal of time, this sort of fellowship of her being the most popular idol in you, uh, and then finding the beast. Like, I couldn't tell, I genuinely couldn't tell you whether that was over years, months, or days. There's no sense of, apart from obviously when she's her mum dies, like, there's no sense of seasons progressing. It's all just the eternal summer. Um, uh, that, that's kind of my feeling of Belle. One of the biggest issues with making shows about that take place in primarily an online space is that there is, is, that there is no passage of time and there is no geography except mm. what is defined by other characters there. And if what you're, if your protagonist is an, is an isolated alone person, especially a young woman, like it is very easy for the entire movie to feel like it takes place in this kind of amorphous void where there is, and it, it's funny because summer wars takes place a big chunk of it online. And I think summer wars has a great geography and yeah. it has, it has a great sense of passage of time mm-hmm. because there's a, fucking satellite that's going to crash on their house <laughs> at some point like mm-hmm. you have to be aware of this time yeah. you have to be aware of the passage of days because it's a movie that takes place over three days and and it's just something he doesn't have on its own he needs a better collaborator i feel yeah. like yeah but who I, am i to say <laughs> there is no sense of threat throughout the whole movie and yeah with summer wars you're right there's a literal physical threat yeah and it's also worth mentioning that the universe just looks shit it doesn't look like, <laughs> like not even this, the CG is beautiful. The CG is lovely. I really like as a, as a person who's always got to boost CG. I, I think it looks great. It's definitely got a great example of like beautifully used CG. Um, but 
holy fuck, does it look like a boring place to live? It doesn't look good. And uh, there's one bit where they burn down this like monster's castle. And then in my head, like they, they seen it as like this really like, oh, isn't this really upsetting? They're burning down his castle. But in my head, I was like, digital, just fucking do it again. Just. Yeah, reload, reload a save. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Just, like, it, it was an <laughs> NFT, Andy, and it, 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 oh, you can never get it back. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the rationale. Um, speaking of uh, children which are permanently online, um, okay. I, I've watched okay, you're doing a transition. Uh, The Orbital Children, which is the return after, let's see how many years, after, whoa, yee. After 15 years from mm-hmm. his previous work of Mitsuo Iso, who is, I would say he's a director, but he's technically only done a couple of, he's only done two, two works, which is Denu Coil and, and this, this work. But he is known as a very talented key animator who worked on several Gainax and uh, Oshi productions. The important thing about him in in the context of this work is he has a interest in the idea of technology as kind of an extra layer on the world as um in Denel Coyle in particular he explored um the idea of sort of uh, uh, augmented reality yeah, of a space sitting on top of uh another space and in this case uh we're in space um we're, we're on a satellite uh orbiting the world everyone has gloves which are smartphones the entire uh, station has a level of augmented reality integration to it the main story is that he focuses on two of the last children born in space we're told people go go and try and live on the moon but the being born in, in low gravity causes birth defects and which result in a very high uh, mortality rate and so humanity returns to its cradle the few remaining children uh, have to be given implants to to make up for the parts which didn't develop properly sadly those those parts are malfunctioning they were supposed to sort of support them until they could grow up and develop develop properly but they've malfunctioned and they've stayed in their brain and haven't properly dissolved and these implants were developed by a super intelligent ai called seven who went um, lunatic, which is the show's term for an AI which basically becomes intelligent on a level which is un- incomprehensible by humans. Essentially, Seven was shut down in panic by the people who were running it. It left behind all these orphaned projects, things which it created, but which its creators didn't understand, part of which are the, the implants in these, these children. So they are basically destined to in one case die in the other case probably be crippled because no one understands the technology which exists within them and the show is about those two kids and the events which surround a uh, sort of re-emergence of a second seven a, a second fundamentally transcendental ai and how 
they sort of end up as uh, sort of mediators between it and humans slash humanity. That's the grand themes. The the minute to minute of it is the them plus uh, three visitors to the space station they live on. Uh, I was going to say a less dramatic take on on (laughs) something like uh, like gravity. Um, but the, the film, obviously, not just the the, the thoughts, um, but uh, they the the physics thing. It starts with a, a, a small collision in the station, which oh, and they're forced to evacuate. The first couple of episodes where they're setting up introducing the characters, I found kind of kind of boring because they're they seem very tropey. They don't don't feel like they've got any depth to them as we're introduced to them. I realise now that's probably intentional because. All that lack of depth is happens before something punches a hole in a part of space station, and they st- start having to interact with each other and sort of deal with their perceptions of the other people as tropes, and sort of break those down and and get to know each other. And it's short in that it's I believe is it six or five episodes? I think it's six. Yeah, just just six episodes. Short series, all in all, all compared to most um, things we see. But very much interested in the idea of how we all build these these constructs around ourselves, especially when we're children. These these cradles which we grow up in, and how when new people from outside that that cradle are introduced to it, how that widens our experience and helps us grow. And in this case, it's that in turn is used as a metaphor for humanity and this AI AI itself, like how you need a perspective outside your own to to actually grow. I enjoyed that as a as a different look at like, oh, we've got a incre- we've got an AI ascending to godhood and mm-hmm. it's not like this horrific thing we have to stop. It's it's something which we can use to reassess where we are in ourselves and whether we can someday ascend to something similar ourselves and like and i thought that was it was just for something which the threat of of humanity getting wiped out is is it's free to frequently brought up it ends up being very optimistic about the possibilities of what humans and humanity can achieve mm-hmm. do you rate it higher or or on par or lower than denocoil which i know you liked a lot um I or do you, not, do you not want them to fight? Is that? <laughs> is... I, th- I think just by just by its, its shorter nature, I think it's perhaps a more concise tale. But I often liked Denner Coils just wandering off into the weeds and just just having an episode which is just an, a self-contained one. One subplot of of this this whole thing, which has kind of amused me, is that one of his Matsu. Matsuro Iso uh, directed a episode of Evangelion, um, which was the episode uh, Lilliputian Hitcher, which is the episode where the yeah yeah where the three um, supercomputers attempt to get uh, took over by an angel. And in uh, Orbital Children, the AI attempts to take over the space station by this strange pattern, which is spreading across surfaces and slowly (laughs) invading the other AIs and uh, uh, taking them over. It just kind of like amused me, like probably like 30 years later, he's he's got, you know what? I really liked what I did back in 1995. (laughs) I think I'll reuse that here. It's a good visual and, and I, it's a good metaphor too. Yeah, Let's do it. yeah. Lilliputian Hitcher is an, an incredible episode because it's one of the first episodes that's just 
entirely the angel attack as a character metaphor to like understand someone's hidden trauma. It's about Ritsko and her relationship with her mother and her desire not to be her mother, even as she realizes that the more she tries not to be her mother, the more she's going to grow up into her mother mm-hmm. very in a very Freudian way. Um, and so I, I don't, I'm not surprised if he may have thought, uh, well, that's good and all, but the like the virus hacking part it was kind of overshadowed by the, like the intense emotional stakes of of Ritzko, you know, dyeing her hair blonde so that she's not a brunette like her mother, and having to like hack into. <laughs> yeah, I, I. It's it's one of the best Evangelion episodes of a show that has a very high standard of achievement. Um, it's good to know that it. Um, not like I was gonna miss out. I loved it in a coil. I mean, I love the languidness. I love the willingness to just waste an episode building the world. Um, it kind of makes mm. me a bit bummed that that Orbital Children has to be focused, but that's that's how we get funding for anime these days. So um, if I complain, it just won't exist. So I have to be a bit more, <laughs> yeah. uh, a bit more charitable. And uh, speaking about being charitable, that's not fair. That's not a good a good foot to start <laughs> off on. Uh, but I watched the I watched the Shirobako movie. Um, I remember Misushima Tsomu said that he he loved Shirobako and he had he had plenty of ideas for more, but he was busy with all of his other works, especially the Infinite Girls and Panzer, which I'm also complicit in morally existing, I guess. Um, so, so we all know Shirobako. It's one of our the early shows we covered. Um, the movie takes place four years later, um, and in the uh, and in the the interim. Uh, Musashino Animation has become a shell of its former self. It has never produced a successful anime since the anime we saw at the end of the last TV show. Um, And is now a contract studio making... doing queens and, and like, filler episodes for C-grade anime. Um, Almost everybody of any talent has moved on. Um, Miyamori, the, the... the foremost of the ensemble is there keeping things together, but it is, it is a dying company. Uh, and the first 30 minutes are very, are very devoted to making you appreciate what it feels like to be, to be a mid to high level employee at a dying animation company, which is clearly something that's very close to the people, to everyone's hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it kind of, and I remember talking to my friend Katie uh, about how like yeah I Shirobako generally is a show where like they encounter hardships but the hardships are built into the industry it's not that you are at a company that can't that can't ship the product at the end of the day like that's not how they configure this and I really did think in the movie especially the the way that they played it at the beginning in the first act that yeah this is this is going to be a movie about about how like sometimes you're stuck in a dead end job and you don't get to make art anymore and you don't get to have these marvelous moments where you march into the the manga author's office and explain to him that you really like his his manga and he like clears away all the obstacles that it was about being in there being being at the end of your career or at the end of this part of your career but no they um a, a movie opportunity that has been um abandoned is basically just vaporware falls into their lap um Miyamori calls in favors and all the old team gets back together and they make this really ambitious anime um, movie, uh, and there are last-minute crises from the the studio who started the animation before abandoning it, trying to reclaim control. There are last-minute crises about how the ending is not does not carry through the themes, and so they're gonna 
they're going to reanimate the entire ending, which is a beautiful fantasy. I wish it happened more in anime, but I know it can't because of, of financial reasons. Um, speaking of Bell, especially. Yeah. Um, but it is not... It's it's ridiculous how good Mizushima Tsomu and the, obviously the staff that he has around him. No, no man is an island, um, least of all an anime director. Um, but how good he is at at building up the stakes of crises and then just showing like a team of dedicated people can get through it. Like if everyone does their job, if everyone knows what's at stake, if everyone does their job, um, if people are willing to make sacrifices and if people are willing to tell other people that they can't make this particular sacrifice, anything can be done. And that anime is a, is a, is a force of will um, that it exists because dozens, if not hundreds (laughs) of people all believe in the same thing for at the very least six months maybe well over a year. Um, and and it is, it's nice. It's a victory lap. And I have a mixed relationship with victory lap movies as sequels to mm. TV series. I love the Deadwood movie. It is by far just an anime, not an anime. It's not an anime. Oh, Deadwood anime. It is by far Deadwood anime. Yes. Oh my God. Just, 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 just put me on an ice floe and ship me out into the Atlantic. Um, Deadwood, the TV show, is very like the movie is very much just like look at all these characters you know, look at them, they're all doing their same thing. Um, you're back home now, and Shirabako is that. The movie is that to a certain extent. They do introduce a few new characters. There's a new like production assistant or production producer who's like tied with the movie property, and she seems uptight. She's like kind of like quietly fashionable, quietly glamorous, but like seems just like all business. And then when Miyamori finally takes her out for drinks and there's just a, a smash montage of them just getting trashed and trashed and trashed. <laughs> and it's just the it's like the ungraceful, the ungraceful drunkard stereotype uh, in anime, especially for women, is so funny where she's just like, what about all that? It's bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. And she's like, you are absolutely right. And we're going to order another set of beers and talk about this. Uh, it's, so, yeah it's a better way to revisit the series almost than rewatching the original series. And I do appreciate the, the pretension of high stakes at the beginning. I don't want to watch a movie about an anime studio dying at the end of the day. And I, but I appreciate that they, (laughs) that they tempted me that I could just watch like Mia Mori slowly wash out of the anime industry because she's tied to this dying company where like people literally saying like, I'm never going to find a job because I'm working at, 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 at Musaani. And like no one respects us anymore. Um, that's hardcore. Yeah. Um, but they don't make you actually <laughs> actually live through the 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 other shoe dropping of that. And there are a lot of like really nice like highly stylized almost musical numbers about like the experience of having an inspiration or the 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 realization that you've got everyone on board who can now we can actually make this anime. Um, it's fun. It's a good way to revisit Shirabako. I don't know if we're gonna get more after this, but. It definitely feels like it definitely feels like something that's celebrating the existence of the anime in general. And given how given how hard it is to find this movie, especially on the international market, um, says the American, I guess, is is the Hmm. the corollary. I it makes me wonder if Shirobako wasn't as successful as it is in my mind. Um, But but I'm glad to ask a question. Question absolutely, then. Absolutely. Um, I obviously, um, Shirobako is a PA Works um, mm. sh- show, uh, and they seem to have a thing for for shows about uh, workplaces like Hansako, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, and uh, we've our, our, our recent favourites, uh, well, of you and John, Sakura Quest, and of you and me. Um, How dare you suggest Akutov. I like Sakura Quest? What what are you talking about? Okay. Uh, yeah, but you like talking about it. I do like talking about it. Complaining about it, about it at least. Yes, uh, um, well, that's me. But they, uh, I think those shows, the, I think Aquatope is demonstrably aware of the way that work has changed between it and the some of those earlier shows mm. is um the, the shirobako movie aware of how work is these days or is it kind of set still set in the same moment that the original series was i do think that i think shirobako the tv series as well as the movie but especially the movie still exists in a kind of late 2000s, early 2010s place where the bullshit exists, but it's ultimately immaterial and that a group of people working together with one purpose can can overcome the bullshit of anime in a way that I personally, as a human being in 2022, like, no, the bullshit wins. Like, we've watched in both of our countries, in both of our economies, we've watched the bullshit win. Um, I think it's a fantasy of how animators wish the animation industry worked and I can appreciate it for that because I wish it worked that way too. As a fan of anime, mm. I wish that you could, I wish that if you really, really, really love this property, you would get to make a movie about it. And that is manifestly not the case, but I love that Shirobako is almost this time capsule of like the last big anime boom and how, how it was there where you could, you could make anything and it would get distribution in America. Funimation would buy it, and yeah. It seemed like the seventh volume did uh, about 13,000 copies on its first week. Um, it's not bad. doesn't seem bad at all. And the movie um, on its first two weeks did about 12,000 copies. So it's fair to say that it was reasonably successful. Yeah, uh, I think it was also very much screwed by the pandemic because it was supposed to come out like hmm. when the pandemic hit. And I do think that... Unfortunately, they see Shirobako as a niche property. And maybe, I mean, maybe likely that's true. I think as an anime podcast, we are outrageously predisposed to, to see this thing mm-hmm. as inha- inherently meritorious. Where other people buy it. Like, what do they do? They, they make an anime? Is that it? <laughs> Does the anime, like, change reality? No. No, it's just an anime about, like, a bunch of people in space. I do admire how, like just bullshit in space they're, they're, the movie is. I would not watch this movie. It seems like bullshit. It seems like a waste of time. But uh, they really believe in it, and it's fun to be along with the ride. Um, so. Yeah, completely passed my mind that this thing... No, I, I recommend. It's just, it just, it's also like the extra politics of making a movie and the extra politics of stealing a project from a studio that's not going to finish a project and therefore is defaulting on their contract, but no lawyers have come after them for defaulting on the contract. There's a lot of that stuff, too, which I yeah, think is... Yeah is interesting um, because like the, the crisis, the crisis, the climax is like, have this original company abandoned rights to the movie that, sh- that Musani is now making based on their, on their pre-production work. It's the same as uh, in the Shirobako TV show where they come in and they're like, um, does the manga Ka actually like what we're doing or does he not? Please tell us straight agent. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I, so yeah, I, uh, okay, how about we call it there? I think so. um, 
Remember, rate, review, and subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. Email us questions, keyframespodcast at gmail.com. Uh, find us on Twitter at keyframespod. Find us on Facebook. I po- I'm going to post some sweet Mokuna gifts. I literally just watched an episode of Ray Earth <laughs> where uh, Mokuna kisses one of the characters, and it's like an extended joke. And yeah, Mokuna fucks for sure. Uh, so yeah, find us. Uh, Keyframes podcast. Just search it on Facebook. Um, tell us what you think about our topic next week, which is going to be Neats and Hikikomori and the framing and reclaiming of a trope by the anime subculture. It's going to be. I guess we're going to talk about a uh, about a uh, Steins Gate and Welcome to the NHK again. Yeah. It's going to be fun. Uh, <laughs> and most of all, tell a friend. Yeah, but don't tell any friend. Uh, uh. I'll, if I were you, Ben, I'll, I'll just tell the friend who fucks. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell the weird, like, rabbit in, in the shape of a mochi bun uh, <laughs> about <Tell> anime. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely he does. or she probably hasn't heard about it, so it's important. To, it's important to get the word out. I mean, it's not surprising that a rabbit fucks. It's kind of <laughs> okay. Awesome. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye.